사시 부기 직식 미덕전 위압냉심 연대견파리 상기신두액태우하기 조금 암락신라주파숙 이란부라나만들라카니리타야미 Sangi Chudam Suki Chakamla Jangshu Bardu Dakni Kyapsuchi Daki Jinso Kipe Sunanki Jola Penshir Sangi Juparshok Sangi Chudam Suki Chaknamla Jangshu Bardu Dakni Kyapsuchi Daki Jinso Kipe Sunamki Jola Penshir Sangi Juparshok Sangi Chudam Soki Chaknamla Jangshu Bardu Dakni Kyapsuchi Daki Jinso Kipe Sunamki Jola Penshir Sange Juparsho I'm coming right into a meditation. attention to your forehead and feeling all the tension melt, the forehead smooth, relaxed. Feel that eyes smiling. Relaxing like they're floating in the sockets. Slight smile on the lips. Jaw and hinges. All the tension drains out of the cheeks. And feel the throat filling up the neck, feeling from the inside out. the tension melts from the shoulders, ice to water, and then water to gas.
Feel the length and the width of both arms. All the sensations in both hands. smile across the belly. Feeling everything relax. Base of the pelvic floor, smile stretches across. the sensations the top and bottom of the feet rest in this open, spacious, calm place. Not grabbing on to anything that floats by, thoughts, emotions. time your mind jumps on it, off the object as it will, simply relaxing, releasing, 
re-relaxing any parts of the body that start to tense up. Probably the forehead or the jaw when we follow a thought. few moments if your mind's jumped off somewhere else come back real clearly and brightly Just single pointed focus and open spacious awareness
you have that, you can release the meditation, start to move the fingers, toes, and make a dedication. today's class. It's really cool. And a big shout out to Geshe Michael because really everything that we're going over is basically word for word his classes that he's teaching. You know, some of our, com our side conversations are different, but it's pretty much all everything that he taught. And they're just really amazing, all these courses. I mean, he put them all together too all of the readings and the homeworks and the quizzes and the finals and the meditations. It's really amazing. Yeah. And he's, he's just such a great teacher. The more teachers I have, the more I realize how great he is and Lama Ami. Um, you know, like making things very clear and accessible. Not complex, not um, you know, hard to follow or understand. So it's really, it's really awesome. All right, so we're on the Bodhisattva's way of life: patience, joy, and meditation. It's Wednesday, June twelfth, and we're on class eight. And this class is really important because it's about the importance of love and compassion and being able to care about others as much as you care for yourself, which is a crucial goal in Buddhism. It's right up there with seeing emptiness directly as the most important things you'll ever do in this life. And it's almost hard to imagine caring for others as much as we care for ourselves. We probably mostly give up on the possibility, and from time to time we do something really giving or really take care of someone, and it feels so great, and we feel like we just did something really amazing. And then we get a little inkling of what it could be like to do that all the time, and then we can't do it for the rest of the day or for months or years or something like that. We get kind of discouraged like we're stuck not caring for people as much as we care for ourselves. And I, I do, I think all of us keep this wish in the back of our mind. And what we're going to do tonight is study a logical progression of the steps that really work. If we follow it, then we'll get there. The direct perception of emptiness or being able to get to bodhicitta are the most important things that could happen to you in this life. And it's really sweet because this is still the meditation chapter. And we think of formal meditation, but so far Master Shantideva hasn't talked about that at all. Um, he talked about the state of mind that you need 
And then briefly, what you need for the direct perception of emptiness. Now he's talking about mental isolation, keeping your mind away from mental afflictions and keeping your mind away from seeing things as self-existent. And the first kind uh, we can get in Sacramento, in our, in our normal life. And then the other, we have to get out of the city for. And I haven't done retreats this long, but Geshe Michael says 15 to 17, 18 days is when your mind starts to clear and really settle. And he says to build up to three, four, or five weeks of retreat and do it, do that at least twice a year. So have that as our goal in the future. And it's a necessary part of our practice because learning in the classroom has a limit. We have to put everything into practice for it to really work. Oh, we're doing contemplations tonight too. Like we were the first few classes. Um, this is, get back to the first one. Okay, so this is contemplation 13. Where to devote yourself to meditation. We spend our days in gentle walks and thoughts of helping others here in the silent peace of the forest, flowing in soft breezes. We live doing as we please in our mansion of a wide, flat rock, cool with the touch of moonlight and sandalwood scent of the holy living deep within the woods of peacefulness, completely emptied of conflict and afflictions. We live where we please so long as we like, in abandoned houses or caves or else at the foot of a tree. We've given up the suffering of owning and protecting things. Carefree we live, relying on nothing. Someone asked Master Shantideva, what kind of place should we meditate in? And that's what he's describing in this verse. We need to find a nice place in the forest. Um, simple. It's better than a, than a huge mansion or something like that. I just thought this place looked really nice. Yeah. Meditation in. You know, almost like you're outside, but not with the bugs and kind of temperature control. <laughs> and it's like in the woods, yeah. all surrounded. Yeah. So in that quote, the moonlight and sandalwood scent is compared to the presence of holy beings. We want to go where somewhere where holy beings have done a retreat because it's like they've left their scent there or uh, the energy of their retreat, the blessing of their retreat. And it'll make it easier for us if we go somewhere like that. Some person who's keeping their vows really well. And Master Shanti Deva is describing the classical description of where we should do a retreat but he's not describing it in a formal way. It's in this really nice poetic form. 
peacefulness talks about being away from the two extremes that destroy our meditation. Do you know what the two are? The two things that destroy it. Kind of close. Kind of. That would be agitation. One of them's agitation. And then you said you were having trouble with the other one for a while. Dullness. Like getting really sleepy and tired. Yeah. Like when... So the, the recipe to not get anywhere with our practice is to eat too much, then have too many boyfriends, too many Dharma projects, make sure our mind is skipping from one thing to another all the time, and we'll never be able to, to get anywhere in our meditation. But if we go on out on a retreat, this is what Geshe says, you'll find your independence. If you've been on retreat on your own, you're alone, nobody could find you. Um, you can just expose, release, surrender yourself to the place, and there's this freedom to it. Nobody could find, this is what he says, nobody could find you even if you died. And it's very liberating. You have nobody to depend on. Nobody could help, a, help you if you got in trouble. And if you're just starting retreats or not really experienced at them, um, you wouldn't do them like that. If you haven't done at least a total of a year of retreats in different pieces, then you shouldn't do a retreat like this. You should have a llama around to help you. But it's good to have in mind for when we are ready to do that. And we're constant, constantly, we have this suffering of not getting what we want. And then finally we get the perfect job or And really, this is what I was going through. I wanted this position for like four years. And then the next day, it wasn't even the next day. It was like a half hour later, I was already worrying about something with it. I was happy for like 10 minutes or something, you know? Like, I'm, in a way, I'm still excited about it, but our mind switches and turns into the anxiety of trying to keep what we have worried about how it's going to work out, um, trying to make sure nobody takes it from us. You know, it's just like it immediately turns to suffering, too. And then in the outline, at this point, Master Shanti Davis suddenly goes from a retreat place, and then he jumps to compassion. So now we're on contemplation 14, what to meditate on the service of others. Think of these considerations and others as well. Contemplate the benefits of isolation. Put an end to useless thoughts and meditate upon the wish for enlightenment. From the very beginning, exert yourself in the practice of treating others and yourself the same. When the happiness and the sufferings are the same, then you will care for all 
just as you do yourself. And when we do go into a long-term retreat, we get rid of all of those worries, worrying about our job, relationship, getting our next degree, all of those sorts of things. After we've been in retreat for a week or so, we don't really have anything to think about anymore. And people wonder, what am I supposed to do now? Like, what do I do? And at that point, if you're having a bad retreat, then you'll obsess about someone. Some negativity. This is why Master Shanti Deva says, release all these useful thoughts and fill it up with compassion. The mind needs something to think about, and it's a really beautiful way to do retreat with compassion. You meditate on the wish for enlightenment or bodhicitta, and you start out your retreat with a really strong intention that you're doing it for someone else. And it's really a protection. Bodhicitta is, we talked about this before, it's, it's the highest protection that you can have, too. The next sentence in the quote, or the contemplation, is what is the method that we should use to meditate on bodhicitta? And Master Shanti Deva says it's to treat yourself and others the same. And it's kind of funny because Master Shanti Deva kind of tricks us. We thought we were going to get to do these really cool meditations, different breath meditations in the meditation chapter. Um, and then he switches to compassion mid-chapter. He goes through two different methods to reach a place where you care about others as much as you care about yourself. Which, reaching that point where we actually have bodhicitta would be one of the most important events in our whole life, just like the direct perception of emptiness, it'll be very powerful, moving experience, very profound. Those two are our goals for life, direct perception of emptiness and having true bodhicitta. So we have to trigger those two in our heart. And tonight we'll get the first part of how to do it. And at this point, um, you kind of get the emotion of him leaving us behind because these ideas we're going to talk about are really so foreign and they're hard for us to grasp. They either go completely over our head or they seem immature or unimportant or they don't really land at all or we're just like, Okay, you know, like they don't really hit us because we're kind of blocked from it. Um, it's it's hard for the human mind to handle these thoughts. It's not like we can't understand them logically in a way, but it's really hard for them to land on our heart or to have a deep sinking in of these thoughts. And so. We just hang in there and we keep studying them and eventually they, they come through more. And it takes amazing spiritual goodness just to be hearing these ideas too. I mean, I don't think many people hear these ideas. And there's, you know, when people hear these sorts of teachings, 
it can floor some people completely or it can sound kind of weird and then most of us are probably somewhere in between so treating yourself and others exactly the same say dak shen nyampa dak shen nyampa Treating yourself and others exactly the same. Which is, it's really foreign. We do not do that. And really we have to, you have to be a karmic millionaire to even hear these words. Working for others' happiness just as much as we do our own. Worry just, just as much about someone else who has a cold as you worry about yourself when you have a cold. We really don't do this. I know I don't. <laughs> like, we don't really care. We try to act like we care because we want to, but we don't really. You know, like, we wish we cared more. Usually, we're much more worried about our own tiny little cold than someone else's big sickness or someone who just had a big surgery. Or, you know, even like someone who just died. We're much more worried about ourselves. The first moment of true bodhicitta is a very critical experience, as is the direct perception of emptiness. Okay, contemplation number 15. There are many separate parts, the hands and all the rest, but we dearly care for them all as a single body. Just, just so shall I work for the happiness of every different being, treating all as equal, all as one, thinking of their joy and pain as if it were my own. At this point, someone starts to attack Master Shantideva and says that you're too idealistic, this cannot happen. It's not possible that we could actually care for someone else just as much as we care for ourselves. And Master Shantideva, the per well, the person who's attacking him says there's so many different kinds of beings and planets, other dimensions. There must be thinking beings in places we aren't even aware of, and how could we care for all of them? How could we ever treat them like we treat ourselves? What Master Shantideva says is you must think of others as being yourself. Actually start looking at them as being you in order, in order to be able to treat others as yourself. So you think that is me. All these millions of other people are me. The immediate objection is that it's too many people. And the question is, because we're really attached to just thinking about ourselves, so the question is, where do we stop? 
where do I end? Do I end at my skin? How does it happen that we decide where we end and where someone else begins? Could we stretch our idea of me further? Usually it covers me and maybe some of my things that I own. So we cho I choose to stretch my idea of me across possessions. And then the person says to Master Shanti Deva, how could I ever think of all these people as myself? And Master Shanti Deva, he's a very great debater, and the greatness is that you don't realize that he's debating. And what he says, he says, think about your arms and legs. How many are there? How many arms and legs do you have? Four total, okay? Are they part of you? Yeah, I think, I think they are. How many fingers and toes? Is that you? And, and each of, we both protect them, so we must think of them as me. If someone comes off, cuts off your fingers and toes, you try to stop them. You think of them as me. So what's happened is we've decided to include our fingers and toes in this idea of me. But they're plural. There's, there's multiple of them, so we have, we have 20. They're not one thing. And we protect them with our life because we've made that decision to do that. Why not decide that the borders of me end somewhere else? We could just as well decide all the people around us are, are ourselves. Everyone around me is me too. Every single person, same, it's me. And it, it is a decision all in our mind. Much of it is forced on us by past karma. But bodhisattvas have completely overcome that karma. And everyone around them they think of as themselves. As far as taking care of them, it's just the same as me taking care of my fingers and toes. For them, it's just the same. So our karma can change and we could see, and you could see me as yourself. It's completely possible. And the question is how? And then at this point, Master Shanti Deva gives a practice. And he says, which we've heard many times before, you start small with potatoes and carrots. You start out small. So to expand these borders, you start small and constantly practice treating others as yourself and your view will change in just whatever small way you can do it. And since I've prepped this class, I've been practicing it and it is really nice like just waking up, right when I wake up, I think, okay, awesome, I'm alive another day, and I'm gonna serve people today. I'm gonna help whoever I can help today. And then I think that when I'm walking into my work, I'm here to serve people whatever they need. That's what I'm here for. I'm not coming here to do whatever, you know, mundane task I'm actually doing, you know, mundane. 
but I'm actually here to serve people and help them. So we have to start small and keep doing it every day and just keep working on our mind. And it'll shift, it'll change. If someone jabs my finger with a knife, it really hurts and I'm upset about it. If someone does this to someone else, it's like, no, well, too bad, you know? Like, I don't really care. I try to, but I just don't. And so this, is, this brings up the obvious next question, um, and we will get to that question. So this point here is you realize that you decide where you end and that you always have. It is forced on you by your past karma. You were born with that, but you can change it. People have studied emptiness, you know, both of us have. We know that it's arbitrary. It's completely empty of any self-existence. It's our karma forcing us to decide where me begins and ends and someone else starts. And you, you can kind of get a sense of it too. You meet some people whose sense of self stops at their body and they don't really care about stuff. They're, maybe they're not attached to their clothes at all. They don't really care. But then you meet someone else and they're really into fashion and their clothes are them too. They're, it's really part of them. Or the same with like uh, their car. Some people don't care at all. Others, this is my car. You know, it's part of them. <laughs> and because of our karma, we live in a world that believes we're all separate. Because of our karma, we live in a world that believes that we're all separate. And then there's another another part of us or another you that you can manipulate by practice. You decide what you want to do, you start small, and then your sense of you can expand. And you kind of, you see great saints acting like this, like Mother Teresa. She seemed that when she was taking care of someone else, she was actually taking care of herself. So you can kind of see this in the very holy beings that you see. And we, we have to learn how to do this because we cannot reach the goal without it. It's impossible. We can't reach Buddhahood without doing this. We have to do it. And we can easily start. It's so easy to start with small things, you know? We can do that right now. We can do it every moment of the day, you know, whenever we remember. It's not that we're taking care of others as though they were ourselves. It's realizing that they are you, and then you take care of them because you're taking care of yourself. So it's a little bit different. The way you take care of yourself is the way you take care of them. And it's just, it's just something that you do. Nobody asks you to do it. It's, you know, you just automatically take care of yourself and it's the same with other people. Nobody has to ask you to help or, or do anything. You're just doing it because you're taking care of yourself. Because that's you. And there's no reason 
So we're taking care of ourselves when we're taking care of all beings. And there's no reason why it has to stop here, except there's this question that comes up about pain and we can't really feel other people's pain. And so how can we really exchange self and others or um, think of others in the same way and take care of them in the same way? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But in theory, you decide what yourself is and you don't have to live with limitations that you were born with. It's a tenet of Buddhism that our mind streams are separate from other beings. They'll never join, they cannot, just because your mind stream is a result of your karma. I cannot do anything for you. A Buddha can't do anything for you. Even when you become a Buddha, they're all separate beings, even if they have the same nature. So we're not saying that we and others are the same mind. Each being has a very distinct mind stream caused by their individual karma. You can't share someone else's karma and you can't directly affect their mind stream. And that's why Buddhas can't take away our pain. And the proof of that is that we're still suffering. And so they can't do it otherwise they would have already done it. And therefore the only thing that they can do is to teach us. But we can learn to see all these other beings as ourselves and take care of them as though they are. And that compassion is the ultimate protection from suffering. Okay. I must stop the pain of others. Oh, contemplation 17. Logical proofs for compassion and love. I must stop the pain of others because it's pain. It's like the pain that I feel myself. I must act to help all others because they're living beings. It's like the body that I own. Basically, it's saying, um, oh no, did I miss, I missed one. Okay, that's 17, but we're on 16, because we're talking about pain. Okay, so going back, contemplation 16, what makes pain mine? Suppose you object and say that your pain never hurts the body of another. Even so, your pain is something you can't bear for just one reason. You're grasping to yourself. Just so, even though it's true that sufferings others feel never come and strike you, still it is your suffering, since you'll find them hard to bear once you grasp to yourself.
And this question, it has to come up in the mind of most thinking people, you know. And we should object. Yeltsin Jay says, when I get hurt, it's not going to hurt someone else. The fact that we can't stand pain that comes to us comes from one thing, our decision of where we define ourselves. And that's a very subtle idea that we have to catch. It comes from only one thing, our decision of where we define ourselves. Unbearable means I must act now to stop it. And this really only occurs with ourselves. unbearable pain. It's you who decides once my boss or friend or family member crosses a particular line, I'm not going to stand for it anymore. People can say things to me to a certain point, but when it goes past that, then I'll act. And this is what we define as the limit that we can stand. And people have very different ideas of this limit. What they declare or decide is and is not bearable. Some people are really hard to make angry. Others, you look at them and they're pissed off. <laughs> and this is a struggle, this question. Master Shantideva is saying, you're right. I cannot feel the pain when someone else gets hurt. But what I decide as the limit of what I'll put up with is up to me. And that's, it's very profound. I choose to respond to their suffering in the same way as I do my own. It doesn't mean that I have to be able to feel their pain or that I'm going to be able to. It's just that I choose to respond to their suffering in the same way that I do my own. And we always kind of feel guilty that we can't quite feel someone else's pain. And that's not the point. We just decide that we won't put up with their pain as much as we won't put up with our own. We're just deciding that, and then we're doing it. When a friend of mine has depression, I'll act. I'll expand my idea of myself. And although I can't feel all of the pain of the depression, if we're, if we're really sincere about it, we can feel that other people's are, people are in pain pretty intuitively. It doesn't mean that we're feeling their same pain, but if we're sensitive to others' pain, then we can help immediately. And we have to stop thinking that we stop at our skin. We choose to decide that when someone else wants something, I'll get it for them as much as if I was getting it for myself. Just the same. And it's hard to decide that they have as much of a right to something that I want. Is It's hard. And why? Why do they have as much of a right? Because they're me. So they're all me. And practicing thinking a certain way Thinking this way creates the karma to be able to think that way. Practice is just watching the karma create something intentionally. Over and over and over. We get better at snowboarding or 
skateboarding or something like that. Not because we did it over and over, because of the karma. It's because of karma. If practice made perfect, then everyone would learn it the same by doing it over and over, and that doesn't happen. It's the karma of practicing it that makes it come true. And fighting the negative karma is incredibly good because it plants the seeds to be able to fight it better next time and on and on and on. It keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. It's infinitely better than the negativity that I or I was fighting just for myself. And we can, we can completely do this. It just takes small actions over and over each day. We can come to the point where every being in the universe, we're working for everyone's happiness equally to our own. And it would just be so much more exciting too. Instead of being stuck just caring about me. It's very limiting. And then, you know, on the positive side, then we also have all of these amazing things happening to us if everyone's me. And we're really practicing like that. And then we also have all of these me's that we can help. And so we have to just start small and then we'll spend the rest of our life working for other people, which is the most joyful way, the most rewarding way that we can spend our life anyways. Way better than just working for ourselves selfishly over and over. Because we've been doing that for quite some time and it doesn't lead to happiness. We know it doesn't. So we might as well try something else. I think we'll, we'll take a break and then we'll come back and do the next contemplation. <laughs>